This morning, instead of being specifically in Matthew, we're going to talk about biblical worship. We will return to Matthew next week. I promise you that we'll do that. But because of the changes that we've made, and those changes perhaps are a little bit more evident on the, the backside that I see, not so much necessarily that you see, although it's been a little bit different already. We didn't sing two songs together. So because of that, it's just wise to kind of go through this and be reminded of why we're here and what we are doing. Most evangelical worship services, ours included for the past, were made up of these blocks of activities that really were not connected to one another. Uh, We had a greeting, we had an opening prayer. We sang because we're supposed to sing, but the songs weren't chosen really with any purpose in mind. Uh, We would have a reading from Psalms, and that would be whatever, I'm sorry, reading from the London Baptist Confession, whatever passage was next. Uh, We would have the songs, we would have an Old Testament reading, whatever was next, two songs, congregational prayer and the sermon would be done. Lord's table, first day of the month. None of those pieces were really chosen to fit with each other. They weren't planned that way. Uh, That's been no fault of anybody but me. That's been my fault. And as I've been convicted of what, frankly, has been laziness and uh, being convinced of the need to be more deliberate in our worship services, then uh, I have been working on uh, a, a different format, worked with Dakota on that, and we're doing the same thing up in Creighton. So let's pray together, and then we'll, we'll talk about these things. Psalm 119, 1-5 says, How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the way of Yahweh. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies. They seek him with all their heart. They also do not work unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. And then David prays, you have commanded us to keep your your precepts diligently. Oh, may our ways be established to keep your statutes. Father, we want to be these blessed, blameless ones. Help us today to observe your testimonies, to seek you with all of our hearts, to walk in your ways and keep your word. Conform us today to the obedience of Christ. And in his precious name, Father, we pray. Amen. The first thing to say about worship is that only God is worthy of worship. That's period, end of discussion, nothing else to say. Only God is worthy of worship. 1 Chronicles 16 records a song of thanksgiving from King David, verses 8 to 36. I'm not going to read quite all of it. But in that song, David defines worship. He defines the activities of worship, the elements of worship. So as I read it, you're welcome to follow along, but as I read it, listen for how many you hear. (coughs) Oh, give thanks to Yahweh. Call upon his name. Make known his acts among the, the peoples, that is, unbelievers. Sing to him. Sing praises to his name. Muse on all his wondrous deeds. Ponder them. Contemplate them. Boast in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek Yahweh be glad. Inquire of Yahweh and his strength. Seek his face continually. 
Remember his wondrous deeds which he has done, his miraculous signs, and the judgments uttered by his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servant, O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is Yahweh our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations. David goes on for a few verses to do exactly that, to remember what God had done for Israel. Then he returns to the instructions. Verse 23, sing to Yahweh all the earth. Proclaim good news of his salvation from day to day. Recount his glory among the nations, his wondrous deeds among all the peoples. Again, nations and peoples, there is a reference to unbelievers. For great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised, and he is more fearsome than all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but Yahweh made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to Yahweh, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory of his name. The word ascribe literally means to put it in writing. And the sense of it is to attribute or to credit or to reckon. So credit God with glory and strength. Credit God the glory of his name. Lift up an offering and come before him. Worship Yahweh in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Indeed, the world is established, it will not be shaken. David speaks for a few verses about the earth responding to God in worship. And then he closes this way. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good. His loving kindness endures forever. Then say, this is so interesting, the timing of this. Then say, save us, O God of our salvation. He doesn't begin with that. And gather us and deliver us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and revel in your praise. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And then all the people said, Amen. And praised Yahweh. If a worship service were an award show, there would only be one recipient and there would only be one award. Every song, every retelling, every proclamation, every reckoning, every attribution, every confession, every appeal, every thanksgiving, every cry for help, and every shout of praise would be to God and God alone. There would be no awards aside from him. No best supporting preacher, no best special song. God gets all the praise. Worship given anywhere else is idolatry. That's the first point. That's the first truth of worship. The second thing to say is that God is specific about the worship we give him. I have missed this for much of my ministry. So from Adam to Moses, God spoke to individuals directly or through dreams and visions. They had no written scripture to follow, but nevertheless, God instructed them. He says to Isaac, the Lord does, in Genesis 26, 5, Abraham, your father, listened to my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. Think about that. God's charge, God's commandments, God's statutes, God's laws. Where, are, where is God recorded in Genesis as giving all that to Abraham? He's not. He gave Abraham an instruction here, an instruction there. We see Abraham carrying those things out. 
Yahweh is speaking to Isaac about much more that Abraham did. I think that he probably communicated to other select men in the same way. When Moses came, God instructed him to write his word. This is no longer God's word to you through a dream or vision. This is God's word to all, and not just all Israel, but all humanity. And in the process of that revelation, as, as everything follows, we, we see that among other topics, the scriptures contain a pattern for worship. A pattern for worship. Now, one example of that is found in Leviticus 8 and 9. Specifically, the, the, the idea that God is only going to accept worship that he has commanded. In Leviticus 8 and 9, we see the ordination of Aaron as the high priest and Aaron's sons as priests. In those two chapters, there are 33 references to the commands of God, and there are eight references to the phrase, just as Yahweh had commanded, just as the Lord had commanded. So do this, and they did that just as the Lord had commanded. Now do this, and they did that just as the Lord had commanded. At the end of Leviticus 9, then, we read this. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. Then they came out and blessed the people, and the glory of Yahweh appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from before Yahweh and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And all the people saw it and shouted and fell on their faces. There's the rhythm of worship. God reveals himself, we respond. He revealed himself in power and majesty, and the people responded with worship. This was the result of Moses and Aaron and the others following God's commands, just as Yahweh had commanded. What happens next? Leviticus 10 opens up with this little interlude. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, the censers, and put fire in them. Then they placed incense on it, and they offered strange fire before Yahweh, which he had not commanded them. Strange does not mean weird. It doesn't mean odd. It means unauthorized, uncommanded. It means foreign. It's foreign to what God had commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of, of Yahweh and consumed them. And they died before Yahweh. God accepted the worship given as he had commanded. He rejected worship that he had not commanded. So we are called to worship Yahweh in accordance with his word. And his word reveals that the worship that pleases him has, a, has an order and it has a content. So let's talk about the biblical order of worship. Now, there's not a single passage of scripture that I can point you to that has the order for the church. He was very specific with Israel. With the church, we don't find that. But what we do find is a pattern throughout scripture that we can follow. If that bothers you, just think about it this way. You cannot find a single passage of scripture that teaches the Trinity. You have to read all of what the Bible has to say about God. There is only one God. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and they're not the same. The only reasonable conclusion is that God is triune. One God who is three persons. 
There's not, a, there's not one passage of scripture that I can point you to that says that Jesus is fully God and fully man. As we study who Jesus is in scripture, we realize, look at him. He's weeping. He's tired. He's walking. He's becoming angry. He's fatigued. He's sleeping. He's sad. He's a man. He's born. He dies. He's a man. Look at him. He's healing. He knows what they're thinking. He's the judge. He's God. What's the conclusion of scripture? Jesus is fully God and fully man. Two natures in one person. It's not that I can point you to a a chapter in Romans or a verse in Romans or a verse in Galatians that says that. That's the, that's the, the conclusion of scripture. We have the same thing with worship. A specific order is not commanded in one place, but we see a repeating pattern throughout scripture. Now, much of evangelical worship, certainly the worship of my ministry career, has followed what, what some call the normative principle. The normative principle is whatever you're motivated to do in your heart with sincerity, God will accept. I had followed that. I had followed that. Why were Nadab and Abihu rejected? Well, who did they worship? They worshiped Yahweh. How did they worship? They worship as Aaron had worshipped. Why were they rejected? It wasn't because they were worshipping a false god. It wasn't because they had invented a brand new way of worship. It's because what they did he had not commanded. So maybe following your heart is not the way to go. Following the Reformation, the the Reformers really had their their work cut out from them as Martin Luther and others broke with the Roman Catholic Church. They didn't just pick up, leave there, go down the street, and start the second Roman Catholic Church of Norfolk. They examined everything. They began with the principle of justification by faith. How is a man made just before God? It's not by works. It's by faith in Jesus alone, by the grace of God alone. Faith alone in Jesus alone by the grace of God alone, as spoken in the word of God alone, for the glory of God alone. But the truth is, they had to investigate virtually everything that the church did. And one of the things they looked into was worship. They didn't simply pick up the Roman Catholic pattern of worship and bring it across. They examined it and asked, what does scripture present? they arrived at what they called the regulative principle, that the scripture regulates the order and the content of worship. The Lord does not say to us, do whatever seems right to you, and I'll appreciate your effort. He says, I've shown you the pattern in my word. Not one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine in a passage, but as he's revealed his word to us, he has shown us the pattern to follow. Order matters to God. He's logical. He is orderly. His creation is logical and orderly. We practice logic and order every day. So farmers clear and till and plant and cultivate and irrigate and harvest. The order of that matters. I think. I I keep suggesting that they just begin with harvest and get it done, but evidently it won't work that way. Couples meet, commit. Uh, or, or meet, court, commit, marry, and have children. The order matters. Socks before shoes, kids. 
underwear before pants. The order matters. The order matters in worship as well. So as you look at scripture, as you look at, at Genesis through Revelation, the order that emerges is this. And, and by the way, it's not that every one of these is in every passage. But all of these are, are in the whole. God reveals himself to sinners and his word. People respond to God's revelation with worship and awe, but sin is a barrier. So the righteous people of God confess their sins and they're forgiven. Having had God's revelation and adored him, having confessed their sins and been forgiven, then he instructs them. And they respond to his instruction with faith and obedience. They bring their needs to him. And then he joins them to himself in peaceful fellowship and then sends him to do his will. That's the gospel. God reveals himself to a sinner through the gospel. They're stricken by the enormity of God and the, imag- the majesty of God and the wonder of God, but they become aware of their sins. I have this terrible problem, this huge barrier between myself and God. Jesus has died for that and taken it all away, and I'm clean before him, and I'm declared righteous before him. And then they're taught, and they learn as they go, they respond to his teaching with faith and with obedience. And they learn to go to him in prayer as their father and as their Lord. And he joins them to himself in, in peaceful fellowship, peaceful fellowship at his table. And then sends them to do his will. So the worship service, and I hesitate to use this because of the connection to Roman Catholicism, but the worship service is a reenactment of the gospel. And it proclaims the gospel in every way. There's a biblical content of worship too. The content matters as much as the order. There are five things that the church is commanded to do together. The first is to preach the word. 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching. The word is central to the worship service. It runs all the way through. And in fact, the the service is really constructed in such a way that the preaching is central. We begin with revelation, then adoration, then uh, confession and propitiation, and then proclamation of the word, then dedication, supplication, communion, and commission. It's literally in the middle. It's literally in the middle. And every element of the service, the singing and the readings and the prayer time, everything is connected to the topic of the sermon. So that instead of having these blocks that are disconnected, they fit together thematically. Second, the word of God is to be read. Until I come, Paul says to Timothy, give attention to the public reading of scripture. So don't tell stories or jokes. Don't read poems. Saturate this time with scripture. It's not a talent show. It's a time where God's revelation is put on display as we worship him. Read the word of God to the people. It's what God has given us for life and godliness. I need that every week. You need that every week. So we can't control what the Holy Spirit might do in our lives today. There are many who try. We're going to call the Spirit of God down. You can't. You can't. 
he has to be sent. What you can do is saturate yourself with scripture. Believe it and obey it. And the spirit fills us as we do that. And by the way, can I say this? The scripture that Paul tells Timothy to read was the Old Testament. The apostles did not unhitch the church from the Old Testament. That's simply a lie. It's simply a lie. What they did was proclaim that Jesus had fulfilled the Old Covenant. But they never set the Old Testament aside. Well, that's fine for Jews, we're told. That's fine for people who know. Timothy is pastoring the church in Ephesus. It's filled with pagans. It's filled with Gentiles who've got no concept at all about what the Old Testament might be. But it's scripture. It's the word of God, and it's filled with his power and his authority. And we're told today in evangelism, you can't quote the Bible to people who don't believe it. Well, the gospel is the power of God for salvation, so you'd better quote the Bible. If you want the spirit of God to be active in somebody's salvation, you'd better give, give them the content of the gospel, which is scripture. Third, the word of God is to be sung. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. By the way, uh, we, we tend to take these individually. We read these individually. We re- read them at home in our quiet time <coughs> or in our study time. But these letters to the churches were written to congregations. It's fine to say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as an individual. That's fine. It's absolutely true, absolutely accurate. But don't forget that these were meant corporately first. Let the word of Christ dwell in you as a congregation richly. Well, how do we do that? Well, he tells us, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Okay, so I get how I, as the pastor, teach you as the congregation. How do we teach and admonish one another? He tells us, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratefulness into your hearts to God. So this morning as we sung, holy, 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 as you sang, somebody else might have heard that and really been reminded of the holiness of God as you taught them. As we sang blessed assurance, there may have been somebody saying, am I forgiven? I don't know. But they heard their brothers and sisters proclaiming forgiveness in Christ. And we do that for each other. There is an inseparable connection between truth and song. It's why I reject the songs of apostate groups like Hillsong and Bethel, Elevation Music, and others. Those songs are written and performed by people who are steeped in false teaching and deception. Every once in a while, there will be a song that is accurate as far as the song goes. But it is a gateway drug into the music of that group, which is false, and into the teaching of that group, which is false. God has given us a wealth of biblically rich, scripturally faithful music. We can sing the Psalms. Uh, I I picked up a new hymn book. G3 is publishing a new hymn book. I've got the PDF. They're going to have the print version available in the fall. They have all 150 psalms set to music at the beginning with tunes that are familiar. Now, they say, yeah, this tune is Avenal. I don't know that. So I have to look it up. But some of the tunes, it's like, oh, that's the doxology. 
oh, that's this, oh, that's that. So we can actually literally sing the Psalms. Then there are uh, hymns and scriptural songs that have stood the test of scripture and stood the test of time. And godly people today are continuing to write sound music. We don't need to simply go to the top 10. By the way, the top 10 worship songs this week, eight of them are from Bethel. That is worth a ton of money to them. Song Select is a group that we use, we report. When we do a song, we report to them. We did it so that the artist of that song, the writer of the song, gets godly attribution for it, and they get paid like any other copyright would get paid. It's worth a ton of money, and it funds those groups. I have no interest in doing that. The fourth thing that we are to do is pray. Again, this is a, a verse that we take personally, but was written to the church, Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. By all means, pray individually, but these are spoken to the congregation. Pray together. That's why the first Sunday night of the month we try to meet for prayer. And fifth, we are to celebrate the Lord's table. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26 when we come to the Lord's table this morning. So pretend I just read it. The corporate worship service, this is what, where it really clicked for me at the, the workshop I went to. This is where everything knit together. I was just kind of listening to the hours of instruction in the workshop time, just kind of taking it on faith that there was some sense to this. This is where it clicked for me. This whole service builds to the Lord's table. We're not just forgiven. We don't just have eternal life. We are seated in the heavenly places in Christ. Think about being seated in the heavenly places in Christ. What's the picture that comes to mind? In my mind, it was always kind of a picture of Jesus on his throne. And, and I suppose what kind of came to my mind, this is why I have paper towels here. Different times during the week, our front door will burst open and here come a group of grandkids. Our grandkids, by the way, not like random grandkids. <laughs> and uh, my Lucy makes a beeline for me and hits my lap. And that's kind of what I had in my mind in terms of being seated with Christ. But then, you know, it's kind of a big throne if we're all seated with him. So let me not dismiss that. Let me not take away the idea that we're seated with Christ on his throne. But would you think about this? That we're already seated with him at his kitchen table. We are in intimate, peaceful relationship with our Savior. That's what we have. That's what this service builds toward. Why depict our fellowship with Christ as a kitchen table, as a dining table, because that's where family gathers to be family. That's where friends are welcomed in. Who sits at Christ's table? His family, his friends, not his enemies, not those who have rejected him. Those who have trusted him. 
Those who obey him, who live for him, those whom the Father has adopted by the blood of his Son, those for whom he's constantly praying. Even when we don't celebrate the Lord's table each week, we need a weekly reminder that because of Jesus Christ, God is at peace with us and we have peace with him. So this is what I want for you. I, I can't prove this from scripture. So I'm just, this is not from the Bible. This is what I want for you each week. I want you to be able to leave saying, God has spoken to me in his word and I have worshiped him. I have admitted my sins to him and he has forgiven me and cleansed me. He has instructed me and I trust him and I will obey him. I've brought the burdens of my life to him in prayer. And then he sat me down at his table and he fed me on his life. So what else can I do but go live for him this week? As this service is, is crafted, there's revelation and adoration. There's confession and propitiation. Where it says sermon, that's, that's really proclamation and dedication. Then there's supplication, and then there's communion, and then there's commission. There's nine. And those nine have a rhythm where God speaks, and we respond. And 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 then God speaks. God gets the first word, and God gets the last word. How do we respond to his last word? We go live for him for the next six days and 22 hours. That's our response to that final word from the Lord. So what do we do with this as we bring this home? Let me give you three things you can do immediately starting this week the first is to prepare yourself for worship before coming ask the lord to prepare your heart read the sermon passage ahead of time i'll be in matthew 23 next week i don't know how far i'll get i'll start out by studying the first 10 or 11 verses but i might get to saturday morning and go yeah three verses but you can read ahead typically speaking i'm just moving ahead of where we were Read a hymn on Saturday night and contemplate the words. Uh, the, the first stanza of At the Cross of Jesus says this, At the cross of Jesus, I would take my place, having been drawn by such a, by such a measure of redeeming grace. And then there's a, a, an appeal to the Lord, a prayer. So fill my eyes with sorrow and then lift my eyes to see Jesus Christ, my Savior, crucified for me. Spend some time thinking about things like that be filled with gratitude for god's worship or god's goodness and prepare for worship when you come in on sunday come with the expectation of honoring and worshiping and serving your god uh, i learn things all the time i learned two weeks ago that the word liturgy means the work of the people the work of the people in romans chapter 12 as paul has moved through uh, his his teaching on the sovereignty of God and salvation in Israel. He says, therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, your spiritual latruo, your spiritual liturgy. So 
We're not actually here to have a great time. We're not here for what we can get. We're here to serve our God in worship. That's what we're here for. No one is in, God is indebted to no one. And he blesses us and blesses our service with peace and contentment. So listen to the readings. Sing the songs with joy and energy. Absorb the word preached. Pray with faith and trust that the Lord has seated you at his table. And then be prepared to go and serve him for the next six days and 22 hours. Devote those days to him. As I said, we begin our service with God speaking to us in his word. We have this rhythm and we end the service, we will this morning, with a benediction, with God speaking to us in his word. And our response cannot happen here. It's the first time in the service that our response to God can't happen in this room. It can't begin till we leave those doors. And then we have all week to live for him.